This podcast is sponsored by Horizon Services, heating, cooling, and plumbing experts. Horizonservices.com. Hello, I'm Jim Gardner, and this is my podcast, More to Explore. Today, that exploration leads us to America's shame, gun violence. And while this is a human tragedy that rips families and communities apart, it can also be described by hard, cold numbers. For instance, in 2021, 48,000 Americans lost their lives to a gun, over half of them suicides. More than 6,000 children were hurt or killed by gunfire last year. In fact, guns are now the leading cause of death among children. There were 648 mass shootings in 2022. 322 people were killed on the properties of K-12 schools. 1,060 people were shot and killed by police. When it comes to gun violence across the world, the United States is an outlier. No other way to say it. Looking at high-income nations and countries with more than 10 million people, the U.S. ranks first in per capita homicides, outpacing Chile by more than 2 to 1, Canada 8 to 1, the United Kingdom 100 to 1, and Japan 200 to 1. Most countries have tough laws restricting the use of guns, and you'd be hard-pressed to find an assault-style rifle in the home of a private citizen. Why is it so different here? And must it always be so that a child is more likely to die of gunfire than cancer? Why must so many neighborhoods in our cities and schools and workplaces and houses of worship and shopping malls and nightclubs in cities and suburbs be shooting galleries with humans as targets? And how do we invest in our communities to achieve long-term progress? And why do our political leaders seem unable to do anything about this? Please join us now as we pose and try to answer some of these questions. So I am frankly proud that we've been able to assemble three individuals who bring enormous stature, experience, and wisdom to any conversation about gun violence in America and in cities like Philadelphia. Former Philadelphia Mayor Michael Nutter, who is now the David Dinkins Professor of Professional Practice in Urban and Public Affairs at Columbia University and the chair of the Institute of Politics's Senior Advisory Committee at Harvard. Dr. Philip Atiba Goff is a native Philadelphian who is chair and Carl I. Hovland Professor of African American Studies and Professor of Psychology at Yale University. He is also the co-founder and CEO of the Center for Policing Equity. And David Muhammad's name has become synonymous with efforts to reduce gun violence and is the executive director of the National Institute of Criminal Justice Reform. He is based in and his work has had historic impact on cities in California, primarily Oakland and Sacramento. Gentlemen, I tried to outline some of the parameters of the gun crisis in America in the introduction to this podcast. So I want to get right to your individual perspectives of this country's gun culture, its impact, and your strategies to save lives. But before that, I want to learn if you're all in agreement with one fundamental notion. This may sound obvious to some, but obviously not to others. But as stated in a report in June of 2022 by the Rockefeller Institute of Government, where there are more guns, there are more deaths. And quote, 
This means making guns less available in the general population and more difficult to access, unquote. So there are 400 million firearms in the country today. That means more guns than people or cars or cell phones. And they take human lives in four ways, suicide, mass shootings, domestic violence, and urban gun violence. But a lot of people will disagree, and passionately so, that the number of guns in America is a problem. So many say this isn't a gun issue, it's a mental health issue. Mayor Michael Nutter, what say you? Well, um, not to be Captain Obvious, but you know, it's really hard to shoot somebody if you don't have a gun. Um, it's just kind of one of those fundamental truths. And so um, I don't think there's any question that the proliferation, the accessibility of guns, especially to young people, uh, is a serious problem in the United States of America. You do not, there's, I think, uh, my two colleagues will, I'm sure, certainly correct me, I mean, you just don't see this kind of activity anywhere else in the, in the free world. Uh, and so, you know, how can we not obviously conclude uh, that there are some unique characteristics, you know, land of the free, home of the brave, Second Amendment, as I've always said, you know, I'm a strong supporter of the Second Amendment, but I think I have a First Amendment right not to be shot. Uh, and so that these young people, especially young people and those not so young, uh, can readily get a weapon quicker than they could ever find a book uh, is a, a national American uniquely American issue and problem. No question. So there are 400 million guns out there, Mayor Nutter. So does it really matter, some would ask, if we make a dent in the making and selling and trafficking of guns, isn't it really a matter that we have to learn to live with guns and to find ways to have fewer people killed by guns? Uh, you know, I, I guess, Jim, I'm just not willing to, you know, ultimately accept that that premise that we just have to accept you know, where we are. Uh, you know, there are things that we can do, um, you, you know, to some extent. The, the guns are there. Uh, I am not anticipating uh, that, um, you know, unlike uh, in certain parts of the country where people are literally trying to, you know, uh, burn books, uh, I'm not anticipating that we're going to have, you know, mass burning of guns uh, or some roundup or some collection. Uh, but we don't have to live like this. Uh, and uh, to do otherwise is just irresponsible and unacceptable. So, you know, more sensible gun regulations, absolutely. More pressure on the manufacturers. You know, look, <clears throat> I can use a debit card on the other side of the world. And in about three seconds, the machine will spit out any type of currency I want, uh, and it gets credited to my bank account. I mean, so uh, we talk often about, you know, smart weapons or this kind of weapon, that kind of weapon. There's so many things in the gun culture, make it, and especially on the suicide and, and even the domestic violence side, uh, to some extent. Gun locks, gun lockers, um, you know, you got to... I know driving is a privilege, not an American right, but, you know, I mean, you actually have to take a driving course, right, or pass a test, right? I mean, if get people get flipped get out, license. get a license, right? I mean, we'd like to know if you're going to have this two-ton vehicle that you might have some semblance of knowledge of what you're doing with it. A gun you can put in your pocket uh, and can, you know, six rounds, 10 rounds, 17 rounds, uh, more than a, 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 a car could ever do to some extent. So, I mean, we just have to get our heads right about this. Professor Goff, I, I remember as a kid that most of my television viewing was focused on 
cowboy shows like Roy Rogers and Hopalong Cassidy and have gun will travel. And I must have seen guns fired by the good guys or the bad guys dozens of times, really every day. And then as years progressed, I would watch cops and robbers shows like Dragnet and The Fugitive and Peter Gunn and Naked City. I'm, I'm sure you remember some of those or have, well, you're too young. He's too young for yeah, that. Yeah, you have he's read, about, that you have read about some of those shows. So in my youth and adolescence, seeing guns fired on TV was routine. When did guns become an essential part of our popular culture and why the love affair between America and guns? Yeah, the mythologies that we've been telling ourselves about who we are as a nation began with the idea that there were wild people and wild land that needed to be tamed by, bluntly, white men with guns. Um, so the cowboy, interestingly, as a, a, a real thing, started with folks on this land in the United States who we would now refer to as Mexicans um, being denied the opportunity to put their cattle on railroads to go to Chicago after the Civil War, right? We think of cowboys as, as our long, long ago, but cowboys as an institution didn't happen until after we abolished slavery. And we started telling stories about cowboys at exactly around the same time we needed to tell stories about how awful and bad everybody who wasn't white was. So that mythology goes hand in hand. Both they had to have the guns and there needed to be bad guys out there who were tamed. But that's different than what we see supercharged right now on the backs of a lobbying group I would refer to as the mass murder lobbying group that says everybody has a right to have a gun with no interference. Forget about well-regulated, forget about militia. Everybody has a right to have as many bullets in as many guns with absolutely no restrictions whatsoever. That's not what the Second Amendment, there's no real historian who can say that's what the Second Amendment was, was intended to do. It's not even what the language of the Second Amendment says, but it's the way that it exists. And I think we're probably going to come back to Florida a couple of times. I made a joke about it off air, but it's the truth. Right at literally the time that they're banning books about the mythology of America in the first place, they're passing laws that say anybody can put a gun in their pocket without a permit. You don't need any paperwork. You just need to go ahead and find wherever you got a gun, find a gun that is your gun it's like we used to catch frogs in the in the, in the uh you know the stream out back it's the same way with guns now in florida that's a different thing so i don't want us to say that just because the mythologies of this country are rooted in gun culture that that's what brought us here that's maybe the ancient origin story but the last 50 plus years have really been a different story and really since 1999 in columbine when you had um, mass mass shootings by young people in places that are supposed to be safe, what's happened is that that should have, and in any rational political context, would have led people to say, whatever else we've been doing, we have to protect our children. And there are some folks who profit from the sale and proliferation of firearms so much that they invented narratives that said, we have to protect our guns better and more than we protect our kids. And that story, the story since 1999, the 25, the last quarter century or so, that is the story of how we are here with 400 million plus guns and law enforcement saying, we cannot possibly um, solve this problem without becoming more violent and more scared of violence ourselves. And the spiral that we see even when six-year-olds are killed in their own schools. I don't know if you can say that there was a gun lobby on the plains of the Wild West, but um, David Muhammad, 
to what degree should the gun lobby, and I guess that means the NRA, be held responsible for the carnage on the streets of America, not to mention inside our places of business and our schools and houses of worship and places where traditionally Americans have been able to feel safe. The NRA, are they, we talk about the good guys and the bad guys, is the NRA the the number one bad guy in 2023? Well, there's no question that the gun lobby is responsible uh, for mass amount of carnage uh, in America. Uh, and, and there's a number of, of things that we have to hold true at the same time. Yes, because there are more guns in America than there are people. Um, if we stopped the sale of every gun today, it would not have an immediate impact on gun violence in cities across the country, but it eventually would. So we have to go on two tracks. We have to have sensible gun safety in this country, which most NRA members agree with. Um, this is what you let you know, it is the lobby. It is really about making money. It is really about the proliferation of guns continuously, but they they agree with sensible background checks. Um, and and so many agree even with the ban of assault weapons, uh, the, the, the um, uh, reduction uh, of magazine sizes, just small, sensible, uh, gun safety laws, but because we can do nothing uh, to do anything to reduce the amount of guns. I mean, take recently in Kentucky and Louisville, where there was this shooting and the governor's personal friend was killed in the shooting. They confiscated the weapon. They're going to clear the weapon. They're going to give the weapon back and put it back into circulation. They're going to sell that weapon back in the streets. The governor, the, the AK-47 that the governor's friend was killed with is going to be sold by the government back out uh, into circulation. And that's the law in Kentucky. And so if we can't get in and the governor's not pushing uh, to change this whatsoever, uh, if we can't and, and the mayor of Louisville is saying, hey, if you believe in local rights, give us the right to at least stop this gun from going back into circulation. It is nonsense. Um, and I think what, what, what Professor Goff so uh, eloquently said is at some point they said protecting guns in this country is more important than protecting children. And for us to put our heads around that, it is, it's mind boggling. Um, and particularly when no one is actually suggesting that there be no guns in America, right? Just some sensible gun safety policies and laws to help keep our children safer um, can't even get the light of day. And when the simplest law of let's, can we destroy an AK-47 that just killed several people illegally? Um, and if you can, and that's not, not only can you not destroy it, you can't even store it in a police locker forever. You actually have the law requires them to put it back out in the streets. Uh, you cannot make sense of of these uh, of, uh, laws in America. So over 45,000 people were killed by firearms last year, uh, over half by suicide. David, you have a number of cities across the country studying and piloting your gun violence reduction strategy that managed to cut gun deaths almost in half in the city of Oakland, California. So 
Could you explain what this gun reduction, it used to be called ceasefire, not so much anymore, what this gun violence reduction strategy of David Mohammed's is, how it works, how it's supposed to be successful in cities across the country? Um, First, it's, you know, it's a partnership uh, of several people. I certainly uh, am a proponent of it. Uh, But, um, but, you know, what I would call a gun violence reduction strategy um, is around reducing non-fatal shootings and homicides uh, by gun. Um, And uh, in a certain sense, the principles are simple. Uh, It's harder uh, when we're working in cities and getting them to implement it. But uh, in most cities, about 70 percent of the people who are involved in gun violence, both victim and suspect, are very knowable. Right. The people uh, are identifiable. The violence is predictable and therefore it is preventable. Uh, they have a similar series of risk factors, uh, contrary to popular opinion. They're not juveniles. Primarily, there's hardly any city in the country where juveniles are more than 10 percent of either victim or suspect. We have a rare case where Baltimore right now is is a, a bit above that. But even in Philadelphia right now, uh, that is not the case. Uh, juveniles are, are less than 10 percent of people involved in shootings. Um, and so but there's a there's a layer of risk factors that we know that people have that makes them exponentially more likely to be involved in gun violence. And we can know that ahead of time. And that means either that, that means either perpetrators or victims for that matter. Either perpetrators or victims. About 70% of shootings, there, there's almost no difference whatsoever. Um, and some of that is because of the cycle of retaliation, uh, that you're a victim one day and, and, and potentially a suspect the next. Um, and it is very knowable. Particularly today, the good and the bad of social media, a lot of social media exacerbates these conflicts, but you can see this train coming. Um, The other thing about social media is you can see it going. There's both the lead up and then there's the aftermath occurring on social media. Uh, But that's just one way in which we know uh, we can we can see this coming. The other good thing is there are effective community based interventions that can be what I call specificity and intensity to specifically focus on the people at very highest risk and to do so in an intensive manner uh, can be very effective. There's also a law enforcement component for sure, and there's a need to better structure law enforcement to be more focused on this issue. Uh, But there are also very effective community-based interventions when all of that's organized right, and then the key one, coordinated and managed well, uh, then we can see significant reductions in gun violence. David, how do you identify those people who are at the highest level of risk, and what are the risk factors? Uh, quickly, I can give a three-hour version of this, literally, but I'll give the two-minute one, which is, one, when you take a, give, uh, conduct an assessment of gun violence uh, over the recent term, say, we're going to look at every single shooting that occurred in the last two years. We're going to look at victim. We're going to look at suspect. We're going to look at what their backgrounds were, what the call, what the reason for the shooting was based upon what we know in intelligence. And when you look at all of those incidents, you come up with, okay, generally, we've done this in several cities, about 70% of the shootings involve the similar type of people with similar risk factors, which are 18 to 35 year old men with significant criminal justice uh, involvement three, five, seven, nine, 12 previous arrests prior to the incident. Uh, third is that they're often involved in a neighborhood clique or a group or uh, you know some 
alcohol gang. There's a lot of cities like Oakland and Philadelphia who say we're not gangs, but they walk and quack like a duck. Uh, and then fourth, often have been victimized by gun violence in the past. And then fifth, one of the one of one of the most predictable uh, predictive risk factors is they're connected to some recent shooting. Their friend, often fellow group member, was shot recently or was arrested for a shooting recently. And you know, when you take those five risk factors. Most cities, about 70% of people involved in shootings have at least four, if not all five, of those risk factors. And when you also review recent shootings, right? So the last thing here is what we suggest to cities is every week, all the people that have the most knowledge about shootings, and many of those are law enforcement officials, uh, get in a room together, review every single shooting, talk about it, not for the purpose of who are we going to arrest and who we're going after, certainly those meetings need to happen. But this is, which of these incidents have a likelihood of retaliation? And based upon the intelligence that we know, who would be retaliated against? Who would do the retaliating? Let's talk about the incidents and the individuals specifically. Some of those individuals are going to get imminent law enforcement attention, but a lot aren't, right? If if uh, uh, Phil and I are 25-year-old guys in the same neighborhood clique in Kensington and uh, I was shot two years ago and survived. And we've both been arrested several times. I'm sorry, Philip. Philip's shot. Uh, um, and then I'm on social media uh, vowing revenge. That, and because of the police department social media uh, monitoring sees this, they need to get me immediately to the street outreach group. So that street outreach is not just canvassing neighborhoods generally. They're specifically going to get David and engage him and then hand him off to a a credible messenger, a life coach, somebody who's going to see me constantly, all the time, engage me intensely. That type of coordinated, specific, and intensive work is how we can reduce gun violence. David, let me uh, just jump in and ask an, an additional question. When we talk about these risk factors, uh, you laid out the five, so all very important. Uh, tell me, uh, educational attainment, reading level, socioeconomic uh, status, do any of those uh, factor in as well? Yeah, so a couple of things. All of those risk factors are present. The issue with, and so a couple of things, and are incredibly important. The issue with those is the number of people who have those, that that universe is just so large that to make those, to add those specifics just makes the universe larger, right? And like this issue of guns, uh, the, the city council requested in Philadelphia a 100 shooter report, which is actually very, very well done report in Philadelphia, where uh, several government agencies came together to give information on 100 people involved in gun violence in an over a period of time. And then they doubled it and they looked at a larger period and, and it showed everything that I just said. Uh, but it was a good point in the report about guns, because if you looked at just guns, there are just so many guns in Philadelphia that that universe of people who've ever been arrested for gun possession is way larger than the number of people who have uh, used guns. So that's when you layer on additional risk factors, you reduce that uh, population. One, one more piece, 60 in that shoot, the 100 shooting review report, 60% of everybody, victim or suspect, had at some point been seen by the behavioral health department in, in uh, 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 Philadelphia. Right. But if you look at everybody seen by the behavioral health bar in Philadelphia, that wouldn't give you the type. And so that's why this thing like, oh, it's a mental health problem. We have a mental health problem in America. Don't get me wrong. But that's not the sole reason that we've got a gun violence problem. 
So, Mayor Nutter, David has made the point in in many of his writings and uh, his uh, TED Talks specifically that most of the money that governments spend on violence reduction is for a long-term impact and really doesn't do anything to reduce gun deaths now. That is not to say that we shouldn't invest in things like education and neighborhood revitalization and, of course, jobs. How does all that, and this very much relates to your question, how does all that eventually translate into fewer gun-related deaths? And are cities like Philadelphia doing this effectively? And then there's this. The organization Brady United says that blacks in our cities are 10 times more likely to die from guns than white people. And to explain, it says, quote, concentrated gun homicide is tied closely to urban poverty, which tracks inequality, which tracks segregation, which tracks race. A lot to unpack, uh, sure. unpack there. Well, I think the first part is, you know, look, I'm, I'm planning to I'm planning to live in the long term, but, you know, I'm just really trying to get through the day. Uh, and so the 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 intensity of what uh, David Muhammad is talking about, that that for me is all about leadership. It is about the here and now. We should make those uh, future investments. Uh, but if I've got a 27 year old with five priors who is likely to shoot or be shot uh, tomorrow, I can't focus on the long term because he doesn't have a long term in front of him, right? He could be gone this weekend. So you really, you've got to put the money where it is going to work. Make the long-term investments. The fact of the matter is is that cities all across the country, it may be short-term money, but you can make a, a direct impact. They have more money now probably generally than they've had since the since Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the New Deal. Right. I mean, we've got six different alphabet soups of funding streams coming from a variety of places. Any decent legislator or executive can figure out a way to tie one of those, two of those, three of those funding streams back to what it is that you're trying to get done. Right. You talk about infrastructure. We're talking about uh, Inflation Reduction Act, et cetera, et cetera. And you make those investments. What happens in many places, uh, I'll speak less about Philadelphia because, you know, Mm -hmm. I've been out of the biz for a while. Uh, But, uh, you know, folks want to, well, let's just give it to community organizations and they'll take care of all of it. It makes everybody feel good. Somebody got a check that keeps their group going. Uh, no analysis, uh, no evaluation. Uh, God knows what uh, is really going on out there, which means you got to make some tough decisions. And, you know, we were faced with the same when I was in office. The recession caused us to make these tough decisions. And I had, uh, you know, our deputy mayor, uh, Everett Gilson, we brought every group in and we said, okay, so how many people you serve? Oh, you know, we're citywide. That's an interesting response. Uh, How many people do you actually serve? (laughs) Right. And we found that group after group, (laughs) like 25 here, 30 here, mostly unidentifiable. And I said, look, I can't I can't afford to keep paying for your legacy. Right. So your funding is going to get cut. Show me a report where you're having some outcomes and we'll go from there. There are people today who are still pissed with me about decisions that we made back then, but they weren't producing. Right. So I don't have time for that. Um, So, you know, I am hopeful that with the work of of David uh, that he's doing here in Philadelphia, obviously, Jim, you know, we've got a, you know, mayoral election. We're not going to get into that. But, you know, those always bring some change. Crime is the number one, number two, and number three issue in this city. This six-year run, 
since 2017 of escalating. So three years before we, any of us uttered the word pandemic, we were already on an uptick. That's a trend. Six years, the last three, 500 uh, plus, 499, 462, 516. 562. Mm-hmm. 562, and, and that, was the, that is now the all-time record. Right, so... Um, there can be no other uh, focus, and people are literally afraid to, to, to be out on the streets. That's a crisis. Dr. Goff, I'm not sure if you, if you know this. Um, I have a hunch that you might. <laughs> the Philadelphia Police Department right now has about 1,300 unfilled positions. A lot of people think that filling those positions, that it would be a huge step in making things better. In other words, that more cops would result in less gun violence in the city. Having read your writings and listened to some of your interviews, I'm not sure you agree with that. If I understand your beliefs, you think that many, if not most, police departments suffer from something called implicit racial bias. How does that complicate a program that depends on such close and consistent contact between police and individuals at high risk of committing gun violence? So let me back up from that just a bit, um, uh, just to frame implicit bias um, a little more broadly. It's not that um, many police departments um, uh, or officers suffer from implicit racial bias. It's that all do. And it's not just police departments or police officers. It's humans. Um, it's a, it's a, a product of living in the world where you're observing racial disparities. Just as you said, you grew up on television that normalized good guys and bad guys with guns, and that's the high drama point um, of either the comedy or the drama that you're watching. Um, we grew up with you know, television news. We, we grew up with uh, television shows that showed the racial hierarchy that's out there in the world. You cannot observe the world without taking shortcuts around that world and then making the association, oh, well, these people have less money, less educational attainment, more prone to violence, right? That's just a natural part of existing in the world. You have to actively resist that if you don't want to make that judgment about individuals. That stereotyping is a, is a universal human thing. It's why immigrants, when they come to this country, one of the first words that they used to learn was the word we don't say for black people now. Okay. So it's not a problem that's unique to law enforcement. And part of the, the troubles that I see between law enforcement is, and community is absolutely the individual level implicit bias. But most of the problems that I'm concerned with right now are the things that make you know, implicit bias that is anti-Black so universal. It's the structures we've got set up. So it's not just uh, Philadelphia that has 1,300 um, open uh, uh, positions. Recruiting for law enforcement across the United States has been difficult for a generation. It got a lot harder post-2020, right? And so anyone who imagines that law enforcement is our route out of the cycles of violence should be troubled by that. But one of the principal reasons why we have so many open positions is because people are starting to question, what is it the law enforcement does? And am I signing up to be a good guy for a living or am I signing up to be on the newspaper or to be on the, on the front page or on the, the, the local news of all of the terrible things that we've seen law enforcement do? And as people are more suspicious that law enforcement does less good and more harm, they're less willing to sign up for it because the job is incredibly dangerous. The pay is not as good as you might make someplace else. And if you are hated for doing the job, who wants that job? Right. Morale is terrible. By the way, morale is particularly terrible um, in black and brown communities. Imagine being a black or brown officer saying I signed up to do the right thing. I'm going into my community where I live and people are calling me a sellout or worse for showing up to do that. 
So when we think about trying to get out of this, you know, David is quite right. There can be a role and there is historically a role. So, so the science community calls parts of what David has done focused deterrence, right? And there's good scientific evidence that in some places using focused deterrence, identifying the people who are most likely to be victims or perpetrators of violence, and those are the same community and very small. David, thank you so much for saying very clearly, I can't just look at poverty, right? I can't just look at race. I can't just look at educational attainment. It is a very, very small group of people who are perpetrating um, uh, <clears throat> these acts of violence that makes everybody afraid, right? Law enforcement can't have a role there, but that's not what we use law enforcement for. 96% in most major city of law enforcement activity has nothing to do with violence. So adding to the, the roles in uh, of police departments, if what we're doing is focusing them on reducing violence, could be incredibly helpful. But if what we're doing is asking them to be responders to homelessness, mental health, substance abuse, child welfare, right, and the rest of things that we might have social services or medical services for, they can never be trained to do that appropriately. We're holding them accountable for things they're going to fail at, and they're going to have conflict with folks in those communities because the tools we give them are tools of containment and violence. So when you send containment and violence to mental health and substance abuse issues, you're going to get containment and violence in response to vulnerable populations. So I would say only that that is an incomplete solve at best. If I can add to, to, to that point, I think this is an incredibly important point that is not well understood at all by the, the average resident of any, uh, any U.S. Uh, city. Uh, who, you know, our mental models are police equal public safety. And that's what we've been taught, right, uh, all our lives. And 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 let's imagine for a moment a fantastical world where police were perfect, right? There was no brutality. There was no like uh, uh, disparity. Even in that world, these aren't, the police departments aren't organized to address gun violence in America. Right. Police departments are organized to respond to 911 calls. They're, they're organized to respond to calls for service. And every police department in the country, the largest division in that department is the patrol division. Almost everything the patrol division does is respond to calls for service, largely 911 calls. When you examine those calls, the majority of them are for low level uh, stuff. Some of a lot of them non-criminal noise complaint, neighbor dispute abandoned car, false alarm. And there's thousands and thousands of these calls that police still today respond to. And when you look at, as, as, as Dr. Goff said, when you look at the workload of police departments, the vast majority of it has nothing to do with gun violence. Um, and so part of what we have suggested to cities is create a unit, if we would love for you to totally reorganize your <laughs> department, but at least create a unit in the meantime, that sole focus is on gun violence, not these crash units and, and gun violence, uh, gun trace task force in Baltimore and Scorpion unit in Memphis. First of all, don't name your damn unit Scorpion. But anyway, uh, but don't focus on areas and uh, 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 general crime if you focus solely on gun violence. One just last story about this. So in the city of Oakland, we took 10% of the police department, 70 officers out of 700, moved them to what was called the ceasefire unit. 
and said you're solely focused on gun violence, not a neighborhood, not a specifically gun violence. And second, you team are going to go through extra training on constitutional policing, procedural justice. Uh, you're going to go through extra training, community engagement. So because these are the type of teams like you've seen in Baltimore and Memphis that usually get more uses of force, more complaints. And this team in Oakland got none, no serious uses of force, no officer-involved shootings, no serious complaints because of, one, the leadership, but also, two, the level of training and focus. Um, and so this can be – and and combined with intensive, effective community-based services focused on the right people, this combination can, can be incredibly effective. Can you make the statement um... – that implicit racial bias within a police department adds to the crisis of gun violence in America. Uh, Mayor Nutter, did you see that when, when you were serving in the city of Philadelphia? Can you make that, that equation? I think um, if police officers have a mindset of, you know, we talk about there's the warrior model and there's the guardian model. And if you go into a community, so at least in Philadelphia, I don't know about other cities, you know, you, you cannot serve in the district in which you live right, for a variety of, you know, safety reasons for the officer and unusual situations, right? So you get assigned to wherever you get assigned to on the other side of the city um, is, you know, violence going on somewhere. And you're just like, look, I'm just trying to do my eight hours and get out of here. Uh, it's a violent place. Okay. But... All the people, even in the districts that have a lot of violence, all the people are not violent. All the people are not criminals. Uh, most are just like law-abiding citizens trying to get through the day. They want the kids to be saved. The grandma wants to go to church, synagogue, mosque, temple. Somebody wants to go to supermarket. They're there. They may be stuck. They, you know, would they like to maybe live somewhere else? Maybe. Do they not want to move? Yes. Like, why should I have to move? So if, if, and that's the trust issue and that's the breakdown. Now, if you're the guardian model, you say, hey, there's some really good people in this neighborhood. I like Miss Jones. She takes care of the, 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 the kids. The, I know these young men over here. Yeah, they're up to some mischief from time to time, but, you know, they're playing and doing whatever it is they're doing. Uh, overall, good people here. I know there's some knuckleheads. And then if I'm getting good data, right, so we used to try to connect the police district to uh, the prison system that, you know, JoJo just got out. Now, JoJo likes stick-ups. If you notice a sudden uptick in stick-ups, it's probably because JoJo just got out, right? Well, we know JoJo, right? Because he is well-known to us. He's been in our custody and care for a number of times. And so that's when you're getting down, I think, to what Dave is talking about. Who is the individual? What's going on? When Dr. Goff talks about the the, the, when he mentioned a 96% number, the flip side for me is that we're talking about 1% to 2% of the population of the city that's involved in all this madness. We spend 30% of the city's budget. Before we pick up a bag of trash, put a drop of water in a swimming pool, police, DA, courts, prisons, probation and parole, five departments, 30% of the budget that most of the people in this city have, will never have, have any contact with. Yeah, that's extraordinary. 
ever. Yeah. Can right? I just say one quick, quick thing? Because I think right now in the Bay Area, we have never had such a clear example of this question of implicit bias impacting gun violence. In the small city of Antioch, California, like hardly existed 10, 15 years, 20 years ago, where a lot of particularly the black community of Oakland is moving to because of the absurd, absurd uh, uh, property uh, uh, cost rates in Oakland are moving to Antioch about a about a 45-hour drive outside of Oakland. 45-minute um, drive. Uh, drive, thank you. Um, uh, 45 minutes. And, and um, a lot of the Oakland dynamics of violence sometimes play out in the city uh, of Antioch. So there's three young men high, high on our radar. Talked about trying to engage, talked to very clearly we were concerned about them being involved in gun violence. All of the writing was on the wall, sometimes literally on social media. Uh, and then these three uh, gentlemen are arrested for a series of shootings, a series of shootings. And so they're arrested. They're, they're taken out of the community. Um, and in, in a part of their defense in the their case, which comes out recently, are 20 police officers in the city of Antioch, which is so small, that's a large portion of their uh, police department, are engaged in vile, vile racist text messages. They're over-the-top racist text messages, which includes, I want to take out the mayor of Antioch, a black man, in these text messages from police officers. And these three gentlemen's case are about to be dismissed because of the racist text messages. Never a clear uh, example of how this overt bias uh, in these officers are going to result in and uh, talk about, you know, incarceration isn't the answer by itself. But when people are shooting people and it's clear, certainly time out of the community is 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 what's needed. And so th this is having a direct impact. And this is now a city that is largely people of color. Historically, it wasn't, and that's part of one of the challenges. Uh, but uh, this clear, vile, racist attitude and culture amongst these officers resulting in uh, uh, what's otherwise clear evidence around a series of shootings will be just allowed to pass. From America's mean streets and scenes of mass shootings to its halls of political power, we now look at the forces that continue to make America an outlier among our peers when it comes to guns and the carnage they help heap upon us. Let me talk about leadership for a second. Mayor Nutter, in addition to being a function of all the social and economic and racial and policing-related matters, is it also true that gun violence is a result of the decisions that are made or not made, and or actions taken or not taken by specific leaders in a city. If people like mayors and district attorneys and police commissioners can be credited with reducing the number of homicides, can they also be held responsible for increasing the number of homicides? Well, I wouldn't say directly. Um, I mean, obviously, they're not you know, engage in those activities. But, you know, look, you, you, you live by the one and, and, and you'll get judged by it. And, and so if it's on your watch that there is a significant uptick, then you Are have to look. Are they partially responsible? Oh, there's no question. There's no question. This is a leadership crisis and dysfunction of what I would often refer to as at least the four 
critical players or elements of a, a, a serious uh, public safety strategy. There are a lot of players, but where I go is it's the mayor, the police commissioner, the district attorney, and the courts. If they are operating not, uh, I want to be very careful here, I'm not talking about collusion. What I'm talking about is an overall sense of what public safety is about, that people who commit heinous crimes, you know, are going to, uh, as David Mohammed said, they're going to have a little time out uh, from society, uh, that there are consequences uh, for actions. And so um, any success that we had, I mean, certainly the brilliance of Police Commissioner Ramsey, but also during that, my eight-year period, uh, you know, we had a DA who understood, an African-American who understood uh, that this crime and violence is going on and is affecting uh, disproportionately black and brown people. And so, you know, if you have an illegal weapon, which is a violation of Title 18 of the Pennsylvania Criminal Code, you were going to do some time away. Uh, if you hurt somebody, even more. The courts understood uh, that uh, they have a role to play. Three of those four players are independently elected officials, the mayor, the DA, and the courts, right? Um, I had a sense during our time that we were in sync. We had a general understanding of what it was going to take. Uh, that understanding, in my view, is completely uh, disassociated and broken uh, and is dysfunctional at the moment. Today. Today. You're saying that there is a problem with leadership as it as it applies to gun violence right. and gun violence reduction in Philadelphia, um, you're talking about, you, you talked about four people. They're not on the same page. Uh, we, we've seen, sadly, uh, almost a, like a public food fight uh, between the mayor and the DA. The DA generally will not prosecute uh, if the only thing you've done is have an illegal weapon. Well, that's a violation of the law in and of itself. I mean, his standard seems to be, well, yeah, you had the weapon, uh, but then did you do anything, right? We have an environment where the DA's office b has basically taken the position, unless you steal more than $500 worth of goods or merchandise, there's no prosecution. Do you have any idea what a small business person who has 10 people steal $499 worth of stuff on a regular basis, what that would do to that business. It, it, Jim, what I'm saying is it creates an environment of a certain sense of lawlessness with no consequence. And and does that filter not down to, because it's not a matter of filtering down to less serious crimes, uh, it, quite the opposite, but does that translate into a certain um, laxity? I'm not sure that's a word, but laxness on the people who brandish guns on the street? Do they feel that they have a certain amount of latitude? Uh, be, well, do they recognize all this? Look, some of them may have some mental health issues, but, I mean, they do pay attention. Uh, word on the street travels faster than uh, Verizon, AT&T, or T-Mobile, right? Mm -hmm. So they know if I'm just carrying my weapon, mostly nothing is going to happen. I get a free pass. Right. Um, or if I do something else, you know, charges often get downgraded, pleaded out, et cetera, et cetera. Folks have I mean, you know, it's their business to know the system. So you have all of this activity going on and the police officers are in a position where like, why am I? I'm going to chase a guy three blocks down the street, jump into a vacant around the corner, whatever the case may be and possibly see the person out two days later. Why would I do that? 
Right. So it, it's creating more and more dysfunction within the system and the antagonism uh, between the DA's office and, and the police department. Again, they're independent, but they actually are kind of dependent on each other. The clearance but, rate but is gone But you seem down. to be saying this exacerbates the problem no of gun violence in Philadelphia. No question. The, the folks, just it's there is a sense of lawlessness. I have a pretty decent chance if I do something— if I'm in the criminal world, I have a pretty decent chance of getting away with it. Folks, some folks are willing to take those odds. Dr. Goff, Philadelphia's homicide numbers have been soaring. You're familiar with them. The cities of Chester and Trenton, they've been experiencing... Camden. And Camden. They have been experiencing declining numbers of gun deaths over a number of years. So what do you imagine is happening in Chester and Trenton that hasn't been happening in Philadelphia? You know, in the last three years, we've seen um, what scientists are referring to as a murder spike. It's a spike in violent crime that preceded a spike in all other crimes. Um, As the mayor uh, has said, six years is a trend. Three years is also a trend. Um, So I'm not sure that the all crime uh, increases of the last couple of years are something that we need to be terribly worried about yet. Um, But the murders, but when murder's up, you want to pay attention to that. Um, there are some places where it's down. A couple of things that we know in terms of trends around that, those folks are using, not necessarily focused deterrence per se, but they're using the same basic intelligence-led systems. So there are some folks who imagine that the, the real, and, and, and Marinata, you essentially said it exactly like this, um, when people know they can get away with whatever, they will decide to get away with murder. There's another version of this, which I think is closer to what we understand from the scientific community, which is that when no one intervenes on the first act of violence, there will be a second. Okay, And I think that's a little bit closer to what happened. And the reason why I want to precise that, I don't want folks going away from this program imagining that there's a population of folks who's just feral out there. And the only thing protecting uh, the the world from their uh, lawless violence is police. That's not a, a good depiction of reality. What there is is a, a situation of concentrated vulnerability. You got poverty, you got lack of jobs, you got lack of opportunity, lack of, of all the sets of things that make a, a community strong, um, <clears throat> rich, and, and stable. And then there's one domino. And the best use of law enforcement possible is to intervene before the second domino falls. In Trenton, in Camden, we know that they're using a, a kind of evidence-led um, uh, approach We also know that the nonprofits that make outreach into exactly these communities have significantly more money per capita than they do in Philadelphia, right? So Pat Sharkey, the sociologist at Princeton, has a wonderful book, Uneasy Peace, about the general crime decline, because we've been in a two-decade trend of violence and all crimes going down in a way that we had never seen in this country ever before. And law enforcement gets a lot of credit for that. It also gets credit for which it clearly could not take, right? It clearly does not deserve because some uh, some of the the credit for driving that violence down absolutely 100% belongs to local community efforts to reclaim their community, to reclaim their neighborhoods, right? So that is part of what we know in some of the places that are having a different trend than Philadelphia. But here's the most important thing at all of that. Three years of spike, three years of decline in, in, in several places. Scientists are still figuring it out. If I tell you that I know for sure I am lying to you and I try not to lie to a Philadelphia icon, right? Like that's just one of my rules all year long. He's talking about you, Jim. No, he's talking about you. (laughs) 
No, no offense. No offense, Mayor. That's not you. I'm, I'm, I'm talking to the guy sitting next to you. Yeah. Um, and part of the reason we don't know, and this is this is another thing I really want to make sure folks get before we wrap. The number one killer of children in the United States is guns. There is no world um, where no, no place else in the world where the number one killer of children shouldn't be something that is intensely studied. So we understand the ins and outs, the highs and lows, and what absolutely works. And yet in this country, in part on the backs of the efforts of the murder lobby, this the CDC is not allowed to study gun violence. When you're not allowed to study a thing, it means it's dangerous to somebody who benefits from its continuation. That's why I make fun of Florida as much as I do, because you're not allowed to study race and history. It means that studying race and history is dangerous to people in power. But in this country, we're not allowed to study at the federal level. Federal dollars can't go to study gun violence. So as much as I want to hold local leaders accountable for what they do and don't do, that's holding them accountable for how fast they put the Band-Aid on. Right. We could be managing this at a national level. And as a nation, we have decided not to address, not even to get to know better the leading cause of death in children. That should tell us all that we need to know about how deeply invested there are a small group of people are in making sure it continues and how important it is to un unclench their teeth into the lifeblood of what makes the country work. While we study every other possible disease that would ever affect anyone. That would be like someone trying to pass a law that you couldn't study COVID-19. People would say, like, what is wrong with you? That makes no sense, right? Can we talk about guns and politics for a yeah. moment? And when I say politics, no, I, I shouldn't even go there. I was gonna say there was there are some in this country who didn't wanna study COVID-19, but that's a whole other issue. Yeah. Um, it isn't. I want to be clear. As you're asking the question, it is the same issue. There are folks who benefit from vulnerable communities staying vulnerable, and we got to name that in our politics. I'm sorry, Jim. Please, please continue. No, no, no. I, I, I just want to know, and, and David, I'm glad you rejoined us. Um, let me direct this to you. Why does such a large portion of the American populace define freedom hmm. as owning a gun? Yeah, there is something deep in the origin story of what is now America uh, around the religiosity of gun ownership. Um, and, and you know, I think Dr. Goff talked about this uh, a bit. There is a lot of connection to this uh, with, with, you know, uh, white supremacy and the institution of slavery and so-called manifest destiny uh, in this country. Um, and that is deep. Some of, and I, there's a lot of people today that can't even describe their extraordinary love uh, for guns. It's like uh, um, uh, in the DNA of so many people uh, um, uh, in the United States. And of course, you know, uh, candidate uh, Obama got in trouble uh, around this clutching to your Bible and your guns. Um, and, uh, it, you know, it just it, it is just true because so much of this doesn't make sense. Like this early discussion of we can't study like what rational argument do you have whatsoever that you can't study gun violence? There is no rational argument. Um, and, and, and we look at other countries and we don't have anything like this. We certainly have nothing like this in terms of the use of guns, use of firearms in violence. And we hardly have any any other place in terms of, of ownership. 
Um, and so, uh, but the 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 issue of politics and the lobby, right? I mean, you, you cannot uh, divorce people's opinions, or at least not even even if it's not their true opinions, their actions in politics from the lobby when we protect guns more than we protect children. Um, and there is just no question that the issue of money, although there's also some deep <laughs> religiosity around guns that's also present, but it is the decisions largely, and I love what Dr. Goff said, the death lobby um, uh, has this chokehold uh, or has us at, has our politics at gunpoint, literally, uh, um, uh, in this country. You guys remember the, uh, there was, uh, I guess this was last year during the midterms, there was a Republican. So this, I think it came on the heels of uh, the shooting, the, the mass uh, shooting in Buffalo, right? So a Republican congressman running for reelection deigned to utter that he would consider uh, supporting a bill to ban uh, assault weapons uh, in New York. And a week later, he dropped out of the race. The pressure was so intense on him. Just, I mean, it had just happened, right, in in, in Buffalo. But I, I will take it. Dr. Goff talked about Columbine, and then I, I guess I guess Virginia Tech was maybe after that. Um, I, I I take so us to, to huh? It's just so hard to keep up. They yeah, right, so right, good. right. But for me, the moment where we really showed, I guess, ourselves as a country was Sandy Hook. Right. Exactly right. right. Because if we couldn't figure out how to do something, then what else would, what else would take us? And, so, and let me just say 20, that, that for me is five year old? Like when you have elementary school children being slaughtered, elementary school children being slaughtered, and you do absolutely nothing that's the point where it's like oh we have no chance and, and things have only continued to got worse and this last point here is that what now happens is after these shootings there's now consistently proposals to weaken gun laws immediately after oh i don't know how you continue to weaken gun laws but immediately after these mass shootings that's the knee-jerk reaction not actually making us safer are you in any way impressed and i ask you know, the three of you, uh, with the gun safety legislation that was passed in the Congress this past session. Uh, I mean, what are your what are your reactions to that? Watered down, yeah. watered down Pablum or uh, something significant? Yeah. You know, I, I, I because I'm a recovering politician, I mean, it's always incrementalism. Mm -hmm. Right. Generally, something always beats nothing. Uh, you live to fight another day. Um, let me make this incremental progress, and maybe I can build on it. The problem is, again, oh, we did something. Now we don't have to do anything for like a long time, right, is what I worry about. A couple of questions about the Constitution. Oh, I'm sorry. Did someone, I'm sorry. I was just David, say what did you have to say? That, I mean, like Marinetta said, that, that anything related to gun safety passed uh, Congress is monumental. Like, I, I just do want to say that, right? Because we weren't able to, I think it was the first time, and I don't know, since the uh, uh, Dianne Feinstein assault weapon ban 20 or whatever years ago has ever, has ever passed. And so I think we do need to, 
say that that was monumental while also saying the actual impact of it is little to none. But Dr. Uh, Dr. Goff, does it say to you that perhaps more things are possible, the fact that the Congress did something this past year? Yeah, I mean, so when I look at national politics, I can tell the difference between principle and self-preservation. Um, and so there was a principle of self-preservation in talking about, well, we're going to do something. And, you know, in the same way that David says it's monumental because it happened on the federal level, closing that boyfriend uh, loophole, that was a that's that's not trivial. There are some folks who are going to be alive today because that got solved. Um, and, you know, saving one life is is worth everybody's time. It's certainly better than what Congress does on most days. It is small compared to the scope of the problem, for sure. And so what I want us to do is acknowledge the importance of getting anything done and the fact that re- Republicans, because let's be clear on, on what side this is on, this is usually not a Democrat uh, issue, a Democratic issue, this is a Republican issue. Republicans said, this is happening so often we have to be able to point to a thing. That's good. They said our self-preservation is uh, it requires us to look and do something. That's good. But let's start telling the story that there is a national interest in keeping us ignorant of how terrible this problem is and what we can do to actually fix it from the mess that we're in. I, I want to sure con- talk about the Constitution for a minute. Um, and, I, and by the way, I just appreciate the time that you guys are, are uh, giving to this. You're very generous. Uh, why do so many, such large numbers of legislators, both on a federal level, on a state level, insist that the Constitution guarantees the right to own an AR-15 and high-capacity magazines. Where where does it say in the Constitution that you can do that? Dr. Goff, let's go to you. To be clear, it doesn't, right? Just full stop, it does not. Folks want to say, well, it's the originalist, and it says in order to make, um, shall not be infringed. They just do shall not be infringed. Those four words, as if that's a full sentence. Hi, I teach at a university. That's not a full sentence. You do not get full credit. Okay. It also didn't used to be interpreted by any court in the land that way. Okay. Carol Anderson has a lovely book, right, called The Second, talking about the ways in which the Second Amendment was set up to make sure that certain groups of people who held other humans in bondage and whose economic survival depended on it, really wanted to make sure that they wouldn't have their guns taken away so they could shoot their property, I mean the humans, that they didn't pay to labor on their lands. That's really an originalist uh, vision of what the Second Amendment was for. In this country, what happens is you have a morphing from, eh, it's a general sort of thing, that you want to make sure that folks have the ability for self-protection, to the individual right, on the backs of the murder lobby saying, let us change the story, get judges elected who will say, yes, we have an individual right to a gun. Didn't used to be the case, but now we have an individual right to a gun. Make that Supreme Court precedence. And now you can say anybody trying to take it from you, whatever the thing, they want to take your rights. That story, that it should be a right, that it is a right, Um, You asked sort of where it came from in the same way that the flag and having a car when you turn 16 symbolizes freedom. We've got politicians who the day after a mass shooting of of, uh, three elementary school kids again in Nashville are wearing a lapel pin of the weapon that killed the children at their press conference. We have made our stories so very clearly about that guns equal freedom and taking guns equals tyranny and communism somehow. I don't know how how communism got involved in that. Marx didn't really ask for any of that stuff. We have made the story so much about that that it's hard to have a conversation about 
everything that's dangerous in the United States should be regulated. And our duty to protect our children should be more than our duty to protect the mythologies of the stories we tell about each other. But the, the short answer of it is the murder lobby said we need a better story. And in the same way that tobacco did it for a long period of time, in the same way that diesel cars did it for a long period of time, we got a story that won the day because no one was fighting back on it. No one was looking at the consequences. And that puts us in the space that we're in, which is why I push so hard on telling the story differently so we can end up still pointing our, our gaze at a North Star that is the larger change, not just holding individual local officials accountable for something that's a national crisis. It seems to me much of the political war over guns is being waged in state legislatures and gun rights advocates are winning uh, most of those battles these days. Mayor Nutter, we have seen firsthand how cities like Philadelphia are unable to pass tougher gun laws because the state legislature won't let it. So, so why should the Pennsylvania legislature care what Philadelphia does when it comes to imposing tougher gun laws within the boundaries of the city? Well, you know, most of this is all around, the, first, the slippery slope uh, argument. It's also, suppose some resident from, you know, Pottstown happens to be going through Philadelphia on his or her way to, you know, Delaware. Uh, and if we have a different uh, legislative scheme uh, for guns by county, uh, then person could unknowingly, uh, even unwittingly, uh, violate the law or get in trouble. Um, I think the reality is um, it's back to the slippery slope. Uh, there's no legislator, on, on certainly on the western side of the state, who ever wants the NRA coming after them uh, for having voted to weaken uh, their stranglehold uh, on, on the Commonwealth. And so they know that their strength is at the state level, not at the city level. Uh, Philadelphia would certainly pass something. You might have a couple counties around us that have, you know, flipped in recent years to a more democratic-leaning uh, constituency. Uh, and so, you know, they have to keep that tight hold uh, on their turf, which is Pennsylvania. That's That works for their politics. Has not, they don't care. They... they they couldn't possibly care. They demonstrate by their actions they don't care, by the fact that they won't let us. Uh, pat. Look, we have a gun culture. Twice the city has tried to do that, yes. and both times it was rebuffed. Yes. I was sued on my 100th day in office uh, as mayor in 2008, one of the proudest moments of any of my public service. I was sued by the NRA uh, for legislation that we, had, that we had put forward. We actually won a couple times Pennsylvania Supreme Court. But... Um, you know, the gun culture in Pennsylvania is real, um, but I mean it in a slightly different way. You know, the f first day of deer season, schools are closed in western Pennsylvania. And, you know, this is father to son or father to daughter or mother to, you know, son or daughter. I mean, you reach a certain age, you know, getting that first gun. But I would say, as I understand, the vast majority of those folks are not only law-abiding citizens, uh, but are also uh, uh, gun regulation-abiding uh, folks. They teach their children to respect that weapon, how to use that weapon, how to store that weapon, what it's for and what it's not for. I'm not worried about grandpa on the other side 
of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, I mostly probably want Grandpa to have that shotgun to deal with whatever because he probably knows what he's doing. That's not what's going on on the eastern side of the state. There is no deer season over here. Folks are hunting other people, and that's the difference. Uh, and that's those are the kinds of conversations that we try to have in a deeply purple state. And it is very, very hard. If I can just add to that, when we're talking about state versus local, the shootings don't happen in the state. They happen in the city or in the county or in the village. And so the people who have experienced it, who lost a neighbor, who lost a close loved one, they want to do something about it immediately. But the threat to the people who don't live nearby is that their freedoms are going to be taken away. They don't know. Steve, they don't know Julia. They don't know the folks who died that day. They might see it and be sad, but they don't want to have their freedoms taken away. And so the city or the village or the county can take a vote in the in the aftermath of a shooting where everybody knew somebody who was affected. But the state is not going to feel the same way. Our criminal legal system works that way in general, where we have decisions being made by people who are not proximate to the problem. And the result is that at the state level or at the county level, whatever the level is, that's one level too big for us to feel like a community. We often get the most conservative element because our stories are about our freedoms and rights or bad people coming to get us, which is why we're tough on crime and we're easy on the NRA. Many of our peer countries have experienced horrific mass shootings. In many cases, those events precipitate their governments to impose stricter gun laws. Mm -hmm. And of course, no other country has mass shootings anywhere near the regularity that we do. We are an outlier, and there's no other way to say it. We are an outlier among the so-called wealthy nations of the world. Can either of you, can, can you foresee the day when either our national culture or our Congress change so that we don't keep adding to our proper names of unspeakable tragedy like Sandy Hook and Columbine and Pulse and Emmanuel Amy Church and Marjorie Stoneman Douglas and the Tree of Life? Or is this simply a part of and will always be a part of life in America? Dr. Goth. So look, I like to say to my team, my students, anybody who listen, that optimism in the face of reality is a revolutionary act and you should try and be a bit of a revolutionary every day. I'm optimistic that we don't have to live like this, in part because no one else in the world ever has and is on a trajectory ever to live like this. And also because, bluntly, and I, I don't want to use too much of a technical term, it's stupid. We shouldn't be living like this. It's too stupid. I don't want to be in a world where a country has to be stupid forever. It's also evil. And my great hope for us is that we don't have to live in evil forever. We didn't live in slavery forever, though there were folks who wanted to. You know, folks who said, there's no, I can't see a way to get out of it. Um, and yet we managed to do it because there was significant international pressure to manage to do that. There's a wonderful song going around on social media about all the dangerous things. Have you ever looked at the, the animals in Australia, right? All the crocodiles and the spiders that are big as your face that are going to eat you and the sharks um, that come around the, the swimming pools and come off of land and try and eat people. All the terrible things that could kill you in Australia. But you know what they don't have? They don't have AR-15s. Australia makes fun of the United States because we have been so stupid about the way we've thought about gun violence. I think it can happen, but I don't think the way that it happens is that we figure out the one picayune thing we can do in this city to reduce it by 3%. I, I applaud everybody who's doing that. I'm part of the folks who's doing that, right? But that's not gonna be enough. 
It's also not going to be enough to change state regulations, because by the way, the majority of guns coming into New York, Illinois, California, for the majority of gun deaths are coming from out of state. There's a gun corridor in this in the United States to these various. And so it's not going to be one state alone. And it's not even going to be federal regulation. We have to change the stories that we tell about the utility of guns, about what it means to be a quote unquote good guy with a gun and how useless you are in the aftermath of a bad guy with a gun. But no, I don't think we're stuck in this reality forever. And I think any story that says that we have to be is also part of the problem. Michael Nutter, if I'm a skeptic, and sometimes I think I am, how do you convince me that what Dr. Goff just said is true, is viable? Yeah. Well, both of us uh, have the great pleasure of working with young people uh, on a regular basis, which is what ultimately keeps me so optimistic. Uh, this generation of young people, uh, you know, you can uh, think about, uh, you know, first year in school uh, for our daughter was uh, uh, 9-11, right? She's a first grader. Um, they've 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 grown up with 9/11, a couple of recessions, now a pandemic, and a bunch of other things. But when the insurrection happened on January 6th, it was the young people who knew what to do because they're the ones who have been going through active shooter drills during their growing up period. The adults were, you know, I mean, I don't want to, I mean, obviously it was a terrifying kind of thing. They had no idea what to do. The young people understood uh, sheltering in place, putting stuff in front of the door, uh, and 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 how to handle these situations. I'm 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 betting on the future. I'm betting on these young people. They've had enough. They've seen enough. They've experienced enough. Uh, so many of them are going to run for local, state, and federal office, and they're going to bring those experiences with them. Um, Michael Nutter, former mayor of Philadelphia, currently a professor at Columbia. Dr. Philip Atiba Goff, um, professor at Yale. Do you guys have any sense of competition, you know, with your uh, relative institutions of higher learning? No, let's, we'll save that no, for another actually, time. We, we, we encourage, <laughs> we, Dr. Goff has spoken to my class. and, and Dr. And, Goff and, is shaking his and, head. And what I, are you kidding? And I do stuff with him. We root for Philadelphia sports teams. Yeah, right. I, I understand that Yale has sports teams, and I, I wish them well, but I root for Philadelphia. If, if I don't bleed Eagles green, there's something wrong with me. Right. Seriously, both of you, I want to just thank you so much for your, yeah. not just your, your generosity, but your obvious wisdom. David Muhammad had to leave us, and, and we thank him so much for his participation. Uh, it's fascinating to learn about um, what has been done and what he has been doing in in Oakland and Sacramento and trying to spread that gospel to uh, other cities across the country, some of which, um, I, I mean, ceasefire did find... Uh, a pilot program in Philadelphia, but it so far my understanding is it has been limited to certain areas of South Philadelphia. Funding is still uh, not anywhere near uh, the size that it must be to really make an impact. Uh, targeted yeah. enforcement, does that have a future in Philadelphia? I think it does. Uh, again, uh, David Muhammad is helping us uh, here in the city. I think you know, whoever is fortunate enough to be in room 215 uh, would do well to follow 
uh, his advice, direction, expertise, yeah. and the evidence uh, of what works. Uh, this can't be a, uh, an ego issue or a political issue. This is about saving lives. Uh, as a political figure I know well from, from New York told me, you can't have a great city if people don't feel safe. That it, would be Michael Bloomberg. That would be Michael Bloomberg. Gentlemen, thank you so much. I appreciate you and appreciate your time. And again, I appreciate your wisdom. And uh, thank you for taking part in Jim Gardner, More to Explore. My thanks to Michael Nutter, Professor Philip Goff, and David Muhammad. There are few issues in America more divisive than guns. For those who say the problem isn't guns, it's the shooter, let me repeat what Michael Nutter said. It's really hard to shoot somebody if you don't have a gun. Here's something else that's pretty obvious. With 423 million guns in the United States, it's awfully easy to get one, legally or not. Here's another number, 24,400,000. That's the number of AR-15 and AK-style guns manufactured or imported into the U.S. between 1990 and 2020. That gun exploded onto the scene after the assault weapons ban expired in 2004. Some gun manufacturers saw the post-9-11 surge in military glorification as an opportunity to cash in. In the words of the founder of one of the earliest companies to market the AR-15, quote, we made it look cool, the same reason you buy a Corvette, unquote. According to the FBI, sales of AR-15s jump after every school shooting. I guess some people think it's cool to own a gun, that was just used to slaughter children, like owning a sports car. Jim Gardner, More to Explore, was produced by Jim Gardner Productions in 6ABC Philadelphia. Matteo Iadonisi and I produced and edited this podcast. If you found this conversation worthwhile, please subscribe and tell a friend. Word of mouth is an effective way to help podcasts grow. Thanks for listening. I'm Jim Gardner. This podcast is sponsored by Horizon Services, Heating, cooling, and plumbing experts. Horizonservices.com.